0: Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men but choice Precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond-slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience, toward God, a man bears up under sorrows, when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it? This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Amen. We undertook this series, as was said many times in the past since the book of Matthew, because of an ancient heresy known as Marcionism, named after a man in the second century after the time of the apostles. His doctrine was a doctrine of false love, fake love. He said the God of the New Testament is a God of love. The God of the Old Testament is a God of hate. And he said the God of the New Testament is a different God than the God of the Old Testament. And what he preached is a common heresy, It's known as Marcionism, but it existed before Marcion. It existed throughout the Old Testament, since the days of creation, since Adam and Eve's time and onward. The same exists today. And this is one of the reasons why we undertook this series on sin and judgment to prove that Marcion and all of his followers, whether they have his disease, whether they know they have his disease or not, they have his disease. Just as when individuals visit the physician and the physician announces that the patient has a certain disease and the patient doesn't know. He doesn't know the name of the disease. He doesn't know what the doctor's talking about. He has to figure out what the doctor is talking about and realize, yes, indeed, he has that disease. Well, m- most of Christianity has this terminal disease, believing just like Marcion. That in the New Testament, there is no wrath of God, there's no judgment of God, there's no call to repent of sins. The New Testament isn't that way, Marcion taught. But the New Testament actually is that way. That's why we've been studying chapter after chapter to point out, especially, especially, this fact. It's everywhere, throughout the New Testament. Any proper, honest, sound, plain reading of the New Testament will bear to this truth, will witness to this truth. Not only, though, is Marcionism a common fatal disease. There's another man in the ancient times, after the time of the apostles, in the 300s and 400s. His name was Pelagius. Pelagius. Pelagius had an entirely, utterly, a- extreme, optimistic view of man. He believed that man is born sinless and that man, by his own power, can live a sinless life. Jesus did not die on the cross to pay for our sins. He died on the cross to be an example of how to be dedicated to, to this cause of saving your own soul by works because you can be sinless. He believed that there were people in the Bible who were sinless so that there is no need to preach against sin. If one has already attained to perfection in this life, then he does not need to hear about his sins. But this fatal, eternal disease is also in the churches. That's why nobody wants to bring up sin. Nobody wants to talk about transgressions, disobedience to the Word. Nobody wants to discuss those things. But these doctrines are all over the Bible. Therefore, if we have the disease of Pelagius as well as Marcion, how is it that we have properly comprehended the Gospel? We have not. We haven't properly believed it, Because we don't want to hear these things to understand first for our own selves and then others. First for ourselves, what does this scripture have to say about oneself and his condition before God? This is what we ought to do all the time when we read the Bible. What does this scripture say about one's own condition and then how can I see the world? through that lens, and help others to see what has been revealed when we read the Bible. This is the way of the Christian life. Keeping that in mind, verses 1 to 3 make that very point, that last point. It says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile, guile, a synonym for deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He says, put it aside. Because when our clothes are dirty, we have to take them off and put them aside, set them aside. We need to remove the filthy, dirty clothing and then put on new clothing or clean clothing. Verses 2 and 3 exhort us in that manner. Put aside malice, all malice, all guile, what is malice? Malice is having evil intentions in what you want to do in regards to yourself and others. Malice, evil intentions. Guile or deceit. This, this is more subtle, more secretive, a head fake kind of a lie. That's what deceit is. Lying and deceit are fundamentally the same, but lying is more blatant and open. Deceit is with a cover. It's with a mask. That shouldn't happen, he says. We should set it aside. Hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Saying we believe a certain way, but we don't live that way. Or if we criticize somebody else, when we're actually practicing the same sin. That's why Jesus said, first take the log that is in your own eye out of your eye, and then you will see clearly enough to see the speck in your brother's eye. There shouldn't be any hypocrisy. Envy. Envy is related to greed or covetousness. Envy is wanting the possessions of another. Somebody else has it. I wish I had it. My life would be so much better if I had that. That's envy. Slander. Slander is saying falsehoods about another, saying lies about another. That's slander. These sins should be put aside. The moment we are converted, our minds should have a new perspective. And whatever we had in the past related to these sins, we should, from within because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and because we read the Holy Word, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God together are showing us, revealing to us, convicting us, and want, making us want to overcome our past sins. This is the way of conversion. This is the way of the new life. And therefore, what would be the means? What would be the standard, or what would be the filter for us to understand what righteousness is? The opposite of the sins of verse 1. How are we going to know? Is it in secular studies? Is it in science? Is it in the study of philosophy? None of those, or anything else. It says in verses 2 and 3, essentially it is the Word of God. He says, like newborn babes, Newborn babies. When babies are born, when they are born healthy, when they are born alive, what do they want immediately? When they are crying, when they are first born, what do they want? They want the milk of the mother. They want to eat or drink. This is what they want. Newborns want that. If the newborn... Tastes the mother mother's milk. When he's hungry again, is he going to ask for something else or need something else when he's a newborn? No. What will he want? He wants to he will again, when he's hungry, long for the pure milk of the word. He's gonna long for it again. He'll start crying again. Crying because he needs the milk of the mother to satisfy Him. This is the way it should be when converted. We should long for the Word of God. Not read it in drudgery. Not read it because it's an expectation. Not read it because somebody else or the church says you should read the Bible. Not merely for that, not as a formality, but because you long for it. It says there, long for the pure milk of the Word. Long for it, cry out for it like a newborn baby who is hungry. And when we do so, he says that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Not only is the initial milk necessary on the day of birth, but subsequent milk is necessary in order to grow, he says. You may grow in respect to salvation. If the baby only has it the first day, and not the second, or seven days later, or a month later, he's not going to grow. This is obvious. That's why he's using this analogy, because it's an obvious analogy, an obvious metaphor from real life. If we are compared to children or babies, newborns, then we should be growing. We shouldn't be status quo. We should not be stagnant. We should not even be regressing, going backward but going forward in the Christian life. Verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He puts a condition on it now. He's saying that verses 1 and 2 would be true of you if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have first tasted the word of God upon New birth. If you have first tasted it, you will want more of it. But what kind of a baby does not want more or does not want any? He says there, if you have tasted, but what babies do not taste? Those who are born dead. They were dead, they are dead, so they don't taste. They don't experience, and therefore, they're not going to cry or they're not going to cry for more because they're dead. The stillborn baby is like that. The problem in Christianity commonly is that many people think they are born again when actually they are still born. They think they are born again, newborns in Christ. They think that But they're not really that, because they have no longing for the Word to be their standard, to be their guide, to be their pilot in life, to show them what it means to do the opposite of having malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What is the opposite of that? Well, we need to have examples. We need to have it explained to us. And where are we going to find it? In the Word, in the pure milk of the Word. That's where we will find it, and that's where we will grow. Both justification by faith is necessary as well as sanctification by faith. Our faith must grow. And how is it going to grow? By continually believing in what the Bible says about any and every subject. The Bible is true on any and every subject. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. If this is not descriptive of a believer, especially a new believer, then one should ask, is that person actually a believer? Verses 4 to 10. Verses 4 to 10 will make a contrast between the people of God and the people who do not belong to God. The people of God who believe and the people who disbelieve. The people who have received mercy and the people who do not receive mercy. This is the contrast of verses 4 to 10. And this is necessary because he just explained how we can know who a believer is. So who are the disbelievers, the unbelievers? He shows us. Verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice, precious in the sight of God. His emphasis now is going to be, we'll know the distinction, we'll know the difference between those who receive mercy and those who do not receive mercy. We're going to learn the distinction, as Hosea says it, who ruhama is and who, who lo Ruhamah is. The one who receives mer- mercy and the one who does not receive mercy. That's in Hosea chapter 1. Ruhama means mercy or compassion. He's going to explain where does it all lie or where does it all reside according to verse 4. Which he continues to explain. He'll explain from verses 4 to 8. It's Christ. Christ is the one who's going to make this distinction, cause this distinction between the people who receive mercy and those who do not receive mercy. The people who believe and the people who disbelieve. Those appointed for salvation and the others who are appointed for condemnation. It's all hinging on Christ. Christ is... And Christ alone. And he's explaining Christ as a stone. And it's not Peter's invention. He's going to quote the prophets to show this. That it has always been the case, always will be the case, as it was in his own day, it will be in our day. This him in verse 4 is Christ. He'll say it more clearly later. But coming to him, Christ who is a living stone. That is an irony. Stones don't live. But this stone does live because he's using the metaphor of a stone to describe Christ, who is living. He rose from the dead. He is the source of life. Christ, who is our life, Colossians 3, 1-5, he is the living stone. Rejected by men, but choice, precious in the sight of God. If men reject him, don't let it bother us. Don't mind it. Don't be upset. Do not be confused. If Christ is rejected by men. Why? Because he is choice and precious in the sight of God it depends on what god thinks not what man thinks but most people are seeking the approval of men rather than the approval of god john 12:43 john 12:43 literally seeking the glory of men rather than the glory of god we want the honor we want the favor we want the adulations of men instead of god But God is the one who has endorsed Christ. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the living stone. But now he's calling us living stones. Why? Because there is a building, a spiritual house, a building, and Christ is the cornerstone in the foundation of the building, and then the rest of the building is made up of us. For what end? A holy priesthood, which means in Verse 1, those sins are unholy, a holy priesthood. Further, we are priests, as he will say again in verse 9, a royal priesthood. We are priests. Yes, both male and female in the spiritual sense, not in the practical sense, but in the spiritual sense, male and female, we are priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer up to God? The way we live. The way we live. Because the scripture says, I urge you, brethren, I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you no longer are conformed to this, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. How so? By offering up our bodies as a sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is how we do it. So our whole life is a sacrifice, a daily sacrifice to God. Are we living for God or living for men? Are we living for Christ or are we living for the world? It's either one or the other. Verse 6, he proves that Christ is the focus and Christ is the determining factor as to whether one believes or disbelieves. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Isaiah 28:16 Isaiah 28:16 is here in verse 6 Behold I lay in Zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame The Father is laying in Zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone This shows that the work of Christ as a stone has the blessing, appointment, ordination of God Himself. Because God is the mason laying the stone. The Father is the mason laying the stone. If He is, then whatever we do with Christ is what we are doing with God the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also, but he who denies the Son does not have the Father. 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22-23. If he is the choice precious cornerstone, then what is necessary? He who believes in him shall not be put to shame. Literally put to shame, translated Disappointed. Because if we believe in Christ, that He died and rose again for our sins, then on that day of judgment, we will not shrink away from Him in shame. 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. We will not shrink away from Him in shame. There won't be any disappointment. The disappointment aspect is evident in the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew chapter 25, 1 to 13. In that parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, what happened to the five foolish virgins? They were not prepared for the coming of the groom and the start of the wedding. And when they knocked on the door, the Lord said, I do not know who you are. I do not know, of course, the virgins, the foolish virgins would have been disappointed at that time. Are we ready for that day? Then we must if we are ready, we must believe in him. If, we're, if we don't, there's only disappointment or shame that awaits us. Now, the benefit of verses four to six are applicable to one group, the believing group. Verse 7, This precious value then is for you who believe. No faith, no salvation. And it's not just faith generally, vaguely, ambiguously. It's not faith like that. It is faith in Christ and faith that he died and rose again on our behalf to pay for our sins so that we are not eternally punished. That value is for those of us who believe. And he calls it a precious value, as he said in verse 4. It's precious. True believers will understand the cost, how precious, how valuable it is, that Christ died in our place. He will appreciate it. He will value it and show that he values it by how he lives. Yet, there's another group, the disbelievers. Verse 7, but for those who disbelieve, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. This is taken from Psalm 118.22. Verse 7 is quoting Psalm 118.22. That is, the stone which the builders, the builders were the leaders of the nation of Israel. They rejected that stone, Christ, to build the spiritual house. They rejected him. But what was rejected by men, verse 4, this became the very cornerstone. How? Because of verse 6. Men rejected the stone, the precious choice stone, according to verse 4. But according to verse 6, this became the very cornerstone. Because the Father was pleased with Christ, it doesn't matter what the men think. It depends on what the Father thinks. Verse eight continues, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is Isaiah eight fourteen. Isaiah eight fourteen is quoted in verse eight. this is telling us that the ones who believe value this choice, precious cornerstone laid down by the Father. And we will not have disappointment. We will not have shame. But to the other group, the disbelievers, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To them, when they hear of Christ, the true Christ, we're not talking about the fictitious and fanatical cultic Christ of common Christianity. They believe He's only love. He's never going to judge. He's never wrathful. He doesn't preach against sin. He doesn't expect holiness. That's what they believe. But when they hear of the true Christ, who does expect obedience, who does expect holiness, who does expect that we reject the world, the flesh, and the devil, to them, they stumble. To Him, uh, when they consider Him, they stumble. He's offensive to them. They stumble, and He's offensive. Yes, indeed. If the true Christ were preached in the pulpits, around the world, not just in our nation, around the world, if the true Christ were preached in every pulpit the following Lord's Day, guaranteed, there would be backlash, there would be an uprising, there would be a rebellion against all the pastors who preach the true Christ. The true Christ the true Father, Son, and Spirit, if the people that attend church, the average churchgoers, were to know about who the true God really is, as we are seeking to show, they would be utterly offended, they would be outraged, they would rebel against the word that they heard. It would cause massive, massive division in the churches. And it's not a sinful division. It's not a sinful division if you preach the truth. It's a sinful division if you're preaching heresy or falsehood. This would be the outcome. Because most people believe in a false Christ. Another Jesus, another spirit, or a different spirit, and a different gospel. Another Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 to 4. Now, why? The emphasis so far has been on the two outcomes related to the one person, Christ. And men reject Christ. God accepts Him, or God chooses Christ. In... Verse 8, it will further explain what's happening. Why is it that they stumble? Why is it that they are disobedient? Why is it that they don't believe? Why is it that they're punished? It says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word. If they obeyed the word, they would not stumble. That's the practical, secondary cause of what's happening. But the primary cause, the first cause of why they stumble, are disobedient to the word, and punished, is in the last part of verse 8. And to this they were also appointed. To this. This kind of disbelief, stumbling, offense, disobedience and the consequence of disobedience, which is punishment. This they they were also appointed. Nothing is out of control. Not at all. When it says they were appointed, who is the appointer, Who is determining this result? It's God. If they were appointed, then the one appointing is God Himself. That they not believe. That they disobey. They stumble and are made to take offense. That's them. Now He, in 9 and 10, returns to the elect. But you are a chosen race. A chosen race. The race of the Jews, the race of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the father of the nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, who had 12 sons, and became they became tribes, and the tribes became a nation. They... Consider themselves superior because of what God did for them, taking them out of Egypt, granting them the land of Canaan, and delivering the word to them, and they being the ancestors of the coming Christ. For these reasons, they took great pride in who they were, but they were not chosen unto salvation universally. All of them, though physically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, spiritually they were not, most of them were not, but we are because of God's appointment. God appointed the reprobate in verse 8, but he also chose us, verse 9. You are a chosen race. By grace, we have faith in Christ. This is the doctrine of predestination. Predestination unto salvation and predestination unto reprobation. It's both in verses 8 and 9. Reprobation in verse 8 and verse 9 is unto salvation. The elect in verse 9, the reprobate or the wicked in verse 8. And if that's the case, then how should we Live, knowing that God made a distinction, not because we were good, but because he chose us. Next, a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. We're both royalty and priestly, spiritually speaking. In the Old Testament, these two were not to be combined in one individual, there was a distinction made that nobody should be both a king and a priest. We have one exception, that being Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But in terms of the men on the earth in Israel, they were either to be kings in the line of David and others, or they were to be priests in the line of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. But in spiritual redemption, we are both in the spiritual way. If that is the case, then we are living for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. If that is the case, we are priests unto God, not priests unto mere men. We do serve men, but it is in the name of Christ. We are His to offer sacrifices. Further, we are a holy nation, a holy nation. The nation of Israel physically, they persisted generation after generation in rebellion. With few exceptions, there wasn't widespread conversion or widespread redemption, widespread reformation in the nation of Israel. There were a few exceptions for a few years under certain kings, certain leaders, But generally, they weren't that way. They were an unholy nation. So unholy that God destroyed them, sent them away, and gave their land to others. Just as they lived that way and were destroyed, we should not live that way and also be destroyed. Instead, we need to be a holy nation. A holy nation because we are a holy priesthood, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Verse 9, A people for God's own possession. God's own possession. He redeemed us to be His possession. If we are His possession, we are valuable to Him. And if we are valuable to Him and near to Him, near to His heart, does He want us to come with the filthiness of sin? Does does the average man consider his garbage, his household garbage, a treasured possession, something he keeps near him? No. No, he won't do that. The average man, he'll wear a gold ring. He'll keep something valuable on him and near him. But he's not going to keep garbage next to him or carry the garbage everywhere. Well, why would God want the garbage of our sin? He doesn't want that. He wants us to be His own possession. Valuable possession is what He means. This continues, verse 9. Why are we to live this way? One reason is given in verse 9. We live this way, we are this way, for a purpose. Verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The reason, the purpose is given in verse 9. That or so that, the reason is, if we are ungodly, how can we say anything to anybody? We have no moral authority, no spiritual authority to say anything to anybody if we are unholy. But if we are holy, we are living the way God is wants us to live, then it is true that He actually did choose us, showered His grace upon us, His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That is true of us. Therefore, it manifests itself. Then we have a platform. We have the moral authority to preach the truth to others and tell them, God called me out of darkness into light. Don't you want the same? Why don't you repent and believe in the gospel? He did this for me. He has the power to do it in your life too. No longer living in the dark and dirty ways of the world, but in his marvelous light. Verse 10 reminds us that this is based on God's mercy, not our works, Not good works, no merit, only the mercy of God. Verse 10 quotes Hosea 1.10. Verse 10 quotes Hosea, the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the past, the Gentiles were always... Always in the plan of God, in the purposes of God. At the time of the covenants and the giving of the law and the promises of God delivered to the nation of Israel, Israel was told many times, because of your rebellion, I'm going to send the gospel to the nations. They are not my people, but they will be my people you are my people, but you're really not my people. This is the irony and the contrast that the Lord makes, that the people who claim to be the people are actually not his people because of their rebellion. But the people who are in current rebellion will one day not be in that rebellion and they will be my people, they will receive my mercy. Because of the mercy of God, because of the grace of God, because of the love of God, we love him. Because we receive mercy, we are merciful toward others. We love because he first loved us. 1 John four 19. 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. We are urged here as aliens and strangers. He does not mean that his recipients were exiled from the land of Israel. He's not meaning that he's talking about us in comparison. Our citizenship is in heaven philippians three twenty our citizenship is in heaven three twenty philippians three twenty to twenty one That's where our citizenship is. Therefore, we ought to consider ourselves aliens and strangers on the earth. The people of the earth, the worldly people of the earth, they indulge in fleshly lusts. And many of them claim to be Christians. They indulge and they say, well, that's not a sin. Well, it is a sin. And these fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. This is a matter of life and death. Eternal heaven or eternal hell. Therefore, abstain, reject, avoid, flee from those sins. Instead, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, On the day of judgment, on the day of visitation, the day of judgment, they will glorify God because God will bring to their remembrance what we did in their presence. They call what we do evil, but what we do in God's sight is actually good. So keep up the good deeds and don't be evildoers. Keep up the good deeds, reject the evil deeds. They slander us, they misrepresent us as evildoers. Isaiah 5.20, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.20, there is a woe, a curse on these people, Because they call us, they slander us as evildoers, but we're not evil, we're doing good. They are the evildoers. And a day will come, anticipating the revelation of Jesus Christ, anticipating the return of Christ, God will rectify all of this. He's encouraging us not to worry, but press on. Remember, 1 Peter is one of the books of the Bible that emphasizes the afflictions of the Christian life. And in particular, the specific kind of affliction Peter has in mind is persecution. Persecution. The people who used to be our friends will call us now evildoers. The people who were friendly will now be our foes. But don't worry about it. God has a day when He will meet out retribution and restitution for everything. Now, chapter 2, 13 to 20. Chapter 2, 13 to 20. And then he continues in chapter 3, 1 to 7. Two thirteen to 20. And then chapter 3, 1 to 7. The epistles of Paul, we are familiar with some of the format of his epistles in for example ephesians and colossians he will have what's known as household exhortations or domestic exhortations how is it that practically where we live whatever we do day to day how are we supposed to live what is sin what is righteousness in our daily life well peter has that in these two sections in first peter he's going to specify our relationship to other people and how that should be. Verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We are to submit to every human institution. And he assumes, like he says in verse four or 14, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We submit to them, we obey the government when... They are punishing evildoers and praising those who do right. He doesn't mean we submit to the government for everything they say to us and everything they do to us. He's not saying that. He could not be saying that. If he said that, he would be contradicting what he himself said in Acts chapter 5 verse 29. Because the religious government of his day was telling him, him and John and the rest of the apostles, do not preach Jesus Christ. But he said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29. And there are so many examples throughout the Bible of individuals circumventing or disobeying the government. In the book of Daniel, Daniel's three friends refused to worship the idol. Right? Daniel chapter 3 they refused to worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Therefore, he's not talking about every single thing they do and say. He's talking about when they are doing what God's will is for them, punishing evildoers and praising those who do right. To the extent that they do that, we should be submitting to them. Not subverting them, but submit to them. We... Verse 15, must be doing right. When we do that which is right, good deeds, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. This verse 16 is one of the many verses against the common diluted definition of Christian liberty. People these days under liberty or freedom in Christ, they justify living wickedly, doing evil. And he says in 2.16, don't say free as a covering for evil, but instead be slaves of God, which would be righteousness, holiness, obedience. Yes, we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are also freed from, from the guilt of sin. And we are being freed from the power of sin day by day as we are filled with the Spirit, filled with His Word and living accordingly. We are being freed. Those are the senses in which we are freed. But we're not free to do evil. We are slaves of God. Therefore, honor all men, love the brotherhood, meaning the church, The universal church and the local church. Fear God. Because there is no fear of God, fear of the judgment of God, men do evil. Honor the king. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, Jesus taught. Matthew 22. 15 to 22. 18 to 20, he now brings up a more severe example. And this severe example is contrasted with the example of Christ in 21 to 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect or with all fear not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Even when they are unreasonable, he doesn't mean when they are expecting you to sin. Slave, I want you today to worship my idol. He doesn't mean it like that. He's talking about presenting extreme or laborious circumstances that you must obey that you must do, then just do it. Not only to the good and gentle ones, but even to the harsh ones. Maybe they'll call you names. Maybe they will not treat you in a friendly way. Whatever they might do like that, being unreasonable, you still must do what they expect. Sometimes this happens with employers. 19. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Wasn't the Apostle Paul unjustly thrown into prison? There's a a reward for that. Weren't many others also unjustly thrown into prison, unjustly beaten, flogged, stoned? Yes, they were. That finds favor with God. But what if a murderer is arrested by the government, the government puts him on trial, all the evidence is presented, and it is confirmed he is sentenced to death for the death penalty. Well, he's going to suffer, isn't he? There's going to be some pain when he dies, when the government executes the murderer, right? But is is that noble? That's not noble. That's what he's saying here. There's no nobility when you do evil and then you suffer by the hands of the government or by the hands of somebody else for doing that. You deserve it. But the... Nobility, the honor, the praise, the favor of God is when you are living righteously and unjustly accused. We mentioned Paul, and there are many in Scripture like that. But the prime example is in 21 to 25. It's Christ. If we belong to Christ, shall we not follow his example? People say we're not supposed to follow the example of Christ. Christ was unique. He was the Son of God and He had unique circumstances. We're not to emulate Him. We're not to follow Him. It's kind of ironic that people think that way and talk that way when a generation ago everybody had a fad and would wear a bracelet called WWJD, the initials What Would Jesus Do?, Now, as a reminder, it's not bad to be reminded what would Jesus do. But it ended up being a fad. It didn't last because now everybody says, no, 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 the apostles were unique. Jesus was unique. The prophets were unique. We're not supposed to live like them. Yes, we are. Even in this case, even under severe persecution. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Verse 21 explicitly says, "You have been called for this purpose." You are in fact called for the purpose of following the example of Christ. He suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Therefore, we ought to be ready to die pursuing righteousness. We cannot have the soft, cowardly perspective that, well, they might not like me. Well, they might do something against me. They might say words against me. They might fire me. They might hit me. They might not be my friends anymore. That is all all worldly, fleshly, satanic thinking. Whenever those thoughts come to our mind and we are obsessed with them we are, and we are following them and therefore disobeying Christ, it's sin. He says, follow in his steps, leaving you an example. He suffered for us, so what's the big deal if we die for Christ? Didn't he say in Luke 9:23? If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and come after me. Luke 9, 23. Now, in our case, God is in the process of purification. And when we are persecuted, it is one of the ways in which the Lord is purifying us of our sins. He's using persecution To purify us of our sins. Yes, indeed. Now, if we have sins and are in need of purification, then what's the big deal if we are persecuted for our purification? In the case of Christ, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. He did not sin, he had no deceit, no lies. The scripture is replete with many examples of Jesus being perfect, spotless, blameless. Peter told us already in 119, 1 Peter 119, the Lamb, Jesus, is unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. Unblemished and spotless. That is He, Jesus our Lord. No sin. Whatsoever Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 He made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That was 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Hebrews 4.15 No sin in Christ. He had no sin, yet he died we have sin, we deserve to die. So if we die for him, for his glory, for his kingdom, for the sake of righteousness, then why are we fretting? Why are we anxious about petty things, little things? We shouldn't be. Also, in 21 to 22, this, these verses are contrary to, to a common current doctrine, sometimes explicitly announced, other times implicitly demonstrated. Sometimes it's very obvious, and at other times it's not so obvious. The obvious would be somebody saying, Jesus sinned. And some people say that. John Piper says that. He says that, The Father and the Son broke the second commandment. They broke the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And many people think that Jesus broke the Sabbath commandment, including Piper, but others, they believe that Jesus broke the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment. But he didn't. He practiced it properly. The Pharisees were the ones who broke it by not practicing it properly. Jesus practiced it properly. He didn't avoid it, but he understood it correctly and taught it correctly. Therefore, Jesus didn't sin. But there is another major way in which most churchgoers believe Jesus was a sinner and it is in the fact that they do not follow in his steps. They do not follow his example. Jesus said and did many things in his preaching of the gospel and living a godly life, ways in which we would never speak and never act. When we don't act and speak, and follow in his steps as he did, then implicitly, in the less obvious way, we're calling Jesus a sinner because we think our wisdom, our way, is better than his. We cannot call him a sinner. We call him a sinner, that's blasphemy. There's no salvation for people who consider Jesus a sinner. We ought to humble ourselves and follow his example. And this is a very extreme example, we said. He was reviled. To revile means to denounce, condemn, criticize, slander one's persecutors. But when they were accusing him of wrongdoing, accusing him of sin, he did not say falsehoods about them. He spoke the truth about them, but He didn't say anything false about them. They said false things against Him, but He never spoke falsehoods against them. Though He could have while suffering, He didn't utter any threats. He kept entrusting Himself to the Father who judges righteously. We also must submit ourselves to the Father who judges righteously. 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Verse 24 answers that question. That we might live as we please in our sins because God is a God of grace. Is that what it says in 24? No, it tells us another purpose statement. It says in 24, that or so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin, live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. If we were healed by His wounds, if He bore our sins in His body on the cross, He didn't do it in vain. He didn't do it so that we could live contrary to the reason why He died. He died to sin that we might die to sin. He lives to righteousness so that we might live to righteousness. This is Romans 6. 1 Peter 2.24 is, in a sense, one simple statement explaining what the whole chapter of Romans 6 explains. He died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did so, we should do so. Not because of his sins, but our sins, as it makes clear in 24, bore our sins in his body. Now, conversion, 25. Conversion is simply explained right here. He means here, you are continually straying like sheep. He means that the sheep There's only the sheep or the goats. Sheep and goats. We are in God's providence, God's predestination. We are considered His sheep before our conversion. We don't know that until after our conversion. But we are considered sheep. There's either the sheep or the goats. We were in the past before our conversion, continually straying like sheep. But now we're not. No. Now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is Christ. Christ is the shepherd of our souls. He's the guardian of our souls. He will protect us, our souls. He says in 25, we had unrepentance in the past. Now we have repentance. To return in the Bible, in the spiritual contexts in which it's used, we're not talking about returning, going from one city to another and then returning back to another city in the spatial sense. But in the spiritual sense, in the Bible, to return means to repent. To repent. We strayed like sheep before our conversion, but now after our conversion, we repent, we return and To whom are we repenting? To whom are we now clinging and following? The shepherd and guardian of our souls. He will feed us with his word and he will guard us from the world, the flesh and the devil and the consequences of sin, which is the lake of fire. He will protect or guard our souls. Is this the Jesus Christ that we know? This is what He did for us. This is what He expects of us. Let us therefore follow His example and be like Him as true believers in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.